freedom is never given, it's won. A. Philip Randolph. Now, this week we continue on again this roller coaster ride. This racial reckoning that is happening here is adding even more layers to the already deep and contextual and nuanced experience that we're having here at this epicenter in Minnesota. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. Not only do we have the continued uh, learning that we have about what's happening in the federal charges that are being brought against Derek Chauvin and the rest of the officers, the push out of the other officers' trials, but we also are experiencing more community strife. Even in this moment, we are, are, are struggling internally as a community because of three young people who have been shot, one of them who recently passed away. Adding the layer to not just uh, death at the hands of police officers and systemic issues that have been bringing up, but also our internal community issues that have never gone away. There's a lot to cover. So let's go ahead and dive in and jump into not only what has been happening recently, um, but also starting to, 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 to talk about some of the developments that are also happening. Miss Georgia, go ahead and give us a recap. Uh, thank you so much, Anthony. You know, it was announced uh, Friday afternoon that attorney Ellison was going to be taking on uh, Kim Potter's case, the former Brooklyn Center officer charged in the death of Dante Wright. And, you know, we saw protesters, community leaders demanding actually that this happen. We know that after several uh, appearances at Pete Orpitt's house, the Washington County attorney who was originally signed this case, protesters continue to show up and demand that he uh, upgrade the charges to murder, which he did not do. And then we saw him actually come out and confront protesters, which made them feel that he was incapable of convicting Kim Potter. And so at that point, we saw a shift in the demand from protesters to reassign that case to attorney Ellison, who is the only one so far that has been able to create a prosecution team that successfully convicted an officer of killing a black man. And so uh, now with with seeing uh, this this case be shifted into uh, his responsibility. Uh, we heard from community leaders already that they feel like this is a victory. And it's proving that uh, despite people saying the protests are kind of like senseless and, and, and they don't produce any outcomes, we're actually seeing that they do. We're seeing that uh, the, the unification of our community coming together and, and making very specific demands to very specific uh, officials has actually proven to result in change. And so we'll, we'll see uh, what type of team uh, General uh, Attorney Keith Ellison puts together for this new case. And we'll also have to see if he decides to upgrade those charges. What's striking to me is one, something that we keep talking about, and that is that despite the, the gains we may see or the work that's being done on these systemic issues, that this doesn't take away the fact that we have our internal community issues going on as well. That's I right. know you've been on the ground covering the death of Little Miss Anaya, who was murdered over, over North Minneapolis. 
our internal community strife is also at play. What has been your coverage been like, um, you know, trying to connect with and, and tell the and keep alive the story um, of these young people who have been shot. Now we have one who has died as a result of their injuries. Anthony, it's such a complex issue. But then again, it's not. It's so simple, right? Just put the guns down. But the complexity comes when you see that for the last year, the larger part of our community has been galvanizing around police reform, defunding the police, community alternatives to police. And now here we have this outbreak of gun violence that is claiming the lives of our babies. And we still have two little kids who are in the hospital right now fighting for their lives, right? And the community remains divided. Because while some say now is the best time to implement community-centered solutions, we can't get the mayor to back that. The mayor believes that making sure the police is fully staffed is a priority and making sure that the police are working with other resources uh, is the solution, It's complex because I feel like for the first time since George Floyd, we're seeing prominent Black community leaders who are standing very strongly on opposing sides of this issue. So much so that those who are saying, let's fully staff the police department, let's let's stop saying defund the police, and that that actually has has led to us being here. And they're blaming now the uh, protesters and community leaders who were working on defunding the police. They're blaming them for where we are right now. And I don't know if if that's accurate, if it's an accurate assessment. Because if you go back to the 90s, when Minneapolis was considered Murderapolis, that didn't happen as a response to a defund the police movement. I've got the real direct hurt that community is feeling right now, having to deal with problems that are symptomatic of the systemic issues that we've talked about, trying to keep that on the table, while at the same time watching folks attempt to use this moment to pick apart, as you as you brought forward, not only the progress, but the but the but the the movements. Of, of folks to address systemic issues as if we can't do and, and, and aren't always in a position of having to do multiple things at one time. What's concerning me are fault lines. Fault lines in, in the solidarity because, you know, I'm hearing folks inside of community, um, you know, raise this banner or use this terminology of black on black crime. And how come we're not have the same amount of energy for that? And it's causing um, I'm starting to see some fault lines in the in the solidarity that's been given around, um, even though that term in and of itself is inherently problematic because it's only ever used in terms of of crime within or or, or violence within com- uh, black communities. Even though people kill within their communities, it's, it's, it, and, and so we we don't call it white on white crime. We don't call it anything else. But when it gets into this situation, all of a sudden we have this terminology that that creates fault lines. It's not like we don't address. <laughs> the internalized strife and violent issues. And so that's one of the concerning things that's coming up for me. You know, there are people mobilized. There are people trying to bring bring attention. And and moving 
treating it as a single issue unconnected to all the together is very problematic for me um, in a way that I thought we were moving towards a very much more nuanced approach to, to addressing multiple issues at once. I really connected when certain community leaders were saying like, where are the protesters now? And it's like, well, there, there's a valid point. But when you think about protesters coming together to take a stand against gun violence, who exactly are they protesting? It's not like a system or a structure. People should have that same energy and outrage when we're having violence break out in our community. But I think the root of that problem is very, very, very different than when police are causing harm in our community. And so there's a very clear place to show up and protest. You go to the police department, you go to the governor's house, you go to the county attorney's house. But where do you go when gun violence is plaguing your community? When children are being hit with bullets, they're being shot in their head while they're jumping on trampolines in the backyard during a birthday party. Where do you go to protest that? And that, that question right there is the, the heart of the nuance that, that makes things so problematic. Yes, we need to be out there in, in the streets. We need to be connecting. I mean, right now, the rallying cry that I'm hearing from folks is, is let's find the person who did it. Let's have some accountability. I, I, I can't forget the, the, the press conference when um, little Miss Naya's grandfather stepped up and said, look, <laughs> I'm not here for prayers. We're we going to figure out who this is, right? Because we can have that internalized accountability. I'm here for all of that. And, and I hear the clarion call that says we need, to, we need to step up and do that work. And that work is necessary and it's important. And we need to be have as much fervor for that. I, I receive all of that. And that is absolutely true to me. And I think the, the central thing for me is we need to be able to do multiple things at the same time, see how they're connected, see where the nuance is connected. When we, when we start to fracture because of calling out what somebody should or should not be doing, and when all of these things are connected, we get into problems. We get into a space where, where, where folks are so concerned about how they show up that the work doesn't get done. Shoot, you remind me of Kindred. Kindred by, by Octavia Butler, a woman who time travels throughout her family history and has to contend both with upholding her own survival and the survival of her family. But I, I call on that because it seems to me that as you go through all of these, and you have to see all of these different levels in your reporting, um, I'm wondering what is the through line through all of this that you are starting? Is a through line coming up for you as you, you're on the ground for our internalized strife with the, with, with the violence that we're seeing in our, in our, in our communities? Um, the externalized strife that happens in response to these high-profile killings of us. I mean, you've got to see all of these. You've even gone all the way, you know, in, in your award, Emmy Award-winning coverage of, of the Duluth lynchings and what was happening there. Are there any kind of links through all of these stories that are coming up for you? The value of our humanity. Throughout history, white citizens have tried to delegitimize our value. Uh, but the, the through line in, in the coverage is the humanity and our desire for equal access to all that America has to offer. And this continued resilience to pick ourselves back up 
you know, despite the adversities, despite the injustices, despite the loss, the grief uh, that, you know, it's in our DNA, it's, it's been passed down from our ancestors that we will rise. And so in all of the coverage that I do, I think the, the through line that I always see is our humanity and our strength. And indeed, freedom is never given. It is one. A quote that we started off at the beginning of our show. Indeed. I think, you know, timing is interesting. It's ancestral in the way that we've talked. And there's been so many moments through our conversations on Bearing Witness where things have aligned for us in an interesting way. I think it's fascinating to point out. Um, you know, when when Nakima Levy Pounds was was on the show, she pointed out that um, Little Judea, her name itself, right, being there as one of the witnesses, one of the reasons why this conviction happened, this ancestral divine connection that is is part and parcel to how we talk as a, as a Black community. It's ancestral to us. It's, a, it's part of our tradition and DNA back to the continent. And so if you don't know that, go ahead and Google it and get in connection to that. There's another timing moment that's happening right now. We are, we are in the space of honoring the, um, the anniversary of the Tulsa massacre and the Tulsa and Greenwood massacres. You have so many examples of this happening where Black success, autonomy, and independence is vehemently opposed. Progression for Black folks is vehemently opposed, and in these cases, violently. And in this space, white citizens and, and folks who had returned from World War I with their munitions actually got into planes and firebombed uh, a Black Wall Street, a, a space where multiple money changed hands multiple times. Um, it, was, it was an example of our community, as you have talked about several times, Ms. Georgia, taking care of itself and progressing and, being, and, and having that be met with vehement opposition. But what's fascinating about this moment is, is because of the guests that we have today. We're coming up on the anniversary of Tulsa, which was the removal of a Black engine, a removal of a Black um, um, center. Um, and our guest today is a survival of another version of that kind of removal. Our guest today is a survivor of the breakup of the Rondo community with Highway 94. He's a Navy veteran, 30-year-plus veteran of the St. Paul Police Force, and also um, the executive director of Save Our Sons, an organization that pulled me off the street. Um, he did such a good job pulling me off the street that I snatched up one of his youngest daughters. <laughs> um, please welcome our guest today um, to add some perspective, and I'm going to give him a chance to, to reflect on what he's heard so far, uh, Mr. Melvin Carter Jr. Well, thank you for including me in this conversation. I'm glad that somebody wants to hear what I have to say. Boy, you guys have covered so much. I mean, where do you start? You know, Rondo, with my natural habitat being destroyed, anytime mm -hmm. you disturb the natural habitat of any species, you you create poverty in some context and some unrest, you know. And, and when you create poverty, you create violence. And Jesse Jackson used to talk about economic violence, you know, and, and economic violence, you know, when people are hungry and homeless, throw, throw, throw in one hamburger and, and, and what are people going to do? You know, people want to fend for themselves. And that's a context of which has happened in our communities oftentimes. In terms of the officer in shooting Dante Wright, you know, I, 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 I was a police officer for 30 years and I, and I did a lot of the heavy stuff and I've never held a gun in my hand and didn't know what it was. You know, and I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to see how that could have happened. And Keith Ellison is, is no surprise to me. I've, I've known him since he, I remember when he first got out of law school, he was, he was hungry for justice. I mean, he's, he's aggressive for justice. And 
if anybody can elevate this to to second degree murder, um, I think he can do it. What's curious to me is what's, what I'm not hearing the police say. I think I suspect that they know more what they're saying. I'm hearing the mention of being caught in a crossfire. I might believe that one time. I have trouble, you know, in such a short time. I do love the way that uh, Reverend McAfee is calling us out as men and as a people to be accountable for this. You know, I mean, I think it's a necessary statement that we as men and we as a people come out and condemn whatever this is. And maybe we need, we might not want to call it black on black violence, but we, I think we need to call it something and condemn it. The notion that uh, turning whoever this is, is just doing a shooting and snitching is indescribably irresponsible. You know, the, the police officer in my mind, in me, you know, wants to hunt him down and turn him in. And, and I believe that whoever knows something and not telling it is complicit in the next one. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, though. I think that there is an undeniable truth in our community embracing this no snitching culture, which has further perpetuated the violence uh, because it could come to an end if people did come forward uh, the ones who knew something. So I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, when I was growing up, a lot of the music that we listened to had this no snitching code embedded in in the culture of it. And it, it has fostered a culture that allows violence to happen without intervention. So I, I appreciate you pointing that out. And, you know, with your background in policing, how have you been affected as being first and foremost a Black man, but also having this, you know, extensive career as an officer um, and seeing now the tension between the Black community and and police? How has that affected you? Well, I mean, it's no surprise. I, I didn't necessarily go into policing uh, uh, that naive. As a matter of fact, my, my closest friends in my life were, were Panthers. And so the way that I got recruited to become a police officer was because I was kind of anti-police officer. My language for police officers originally was pigs because that's what the Panthers called them. And that's what was common language for, for from the African-American perspective. The officers that recruited me to sign up said, well, change it from within. Change it from within. You know, I mean, I mean, staying outside of something and, and being against it, you know, has its place. But I, I, I went into the police department with a, I, with a mindset to infiltrate, not to assimilate. I wasn't like brutally, brutally disappointed because it was a racist, hostile, violent um, workplace. Because all, I would say all policing is a, is a hostile, violent, racist, and a sexist workplace. Just before we started, Anthony asked me what to call this, and I titled it, I, I said, uh, perhaps, uh, comeuppance. Have you heard that word before? Mm-mm. You kind of like just desserts, like you reap what you sow. Um, mm. It comes back to you, what we put in. And I, I actually think that that is, is really important here. You know, as you talk about the hostile environment that you came into, historically, there have been really extreme and important systemically racist things that have gone down, not only within police departments, but in terms of connections between uh, police departments and communities of color. There is a space to talk about the over in your face direct intention. But we do things violently to each other because it has been inculcated in us. It has been, it has come into our, our psyche so much so that our autonomic response 
is violence towards black folks, violence towards black and brown bodies, even internally amongst ourselves. That kind of hostility is something that needs to be carried forward with that nuance. I think that's absolutely essential. I, I very deliberately uh, did my best to um, change that culture. And I do think that I've been somewhat in, impactful. You know, a lot, I mean, a lot of the officers and sheriffs give me a lot of credit for having been their um, mentors. I do think St. Paul, we've got a ways to go. We've got some improvements to make, but I, but I do think, I do think of St. Paul police as the upper echelon of, of police departments. There's, there are some exceptions to that. Well, I do have confidence in where we're at right now, more so than in a lot of other places, you know. In your book, um, Diesel Heart, one of the things that you talked about is getting into policing to be a peace officer, not a police officer. Mm-hmm. What, it sounds to me like you're kind of getting at that distinction because you mm-hmm. talk about that. Yeah, I went to policing kind of like a priest would go into priesthood. And I, and I didn't really have a whole lot of anticipation of, of surviving, to tell the truth, because of things that was going on, that was happening to black males across St. Paul. I, I really thought that my going on police, in the police work wouldn't, <laughs> I didn't expect to survive it. I took the oath as a peace officer. No place on earth in, in St. Paul did I take an oath as, as a law enforcement officer. You know, we have a, a memorial down there in St. Paul by the, near the Capitol, and it says, blessed is the peacemaker. It doesn't say, but blessed is the law enforcement. I would say like um, 92, 98% of the, of the day-to-day task is peacekeeping. And enforcing something always implies suppression and oppression. And, uh, you know, I say that I think that law enforcement has taken that um, term to kind of self uh, celebrate themselves, the term Law enforcement has hijacked the peacekeeping mission. Uh, the policing was intended to be a kind of a delicate, kind of a dainty, intricate, personal thing. The term was used, um, people are the police and the police are the people. And they went into that model in order, the policing model, so as not to have a military militia occupation in the cities. That's why they went to the policing models. We don't see that anymore. I, I'd say at the core of a lot of this stuff, because keep in mind, only reason I got hired in the first place by the police department was because the St. Paul City Police Department got sued to have to hire some black folks, you know, it, you know and, and I was last on the list to be hired. You know, I had the lowest score out of everybody. So it hadn't been for this lawsuit, you know, I, I would have never have the job and there wouldn't be a lot of blacks on the police department at this time. Simultaneously, under Chief McCutcheon, who, who was who was the deputy chief at that time, who became the chief shortly thereafter, he went and, and implemented this, this statewide thing called the Post Board. Now, keep in mind, a, a lawsuit and hire some black folks, and then suddenly this Post Board springs up, and you got to have all these lofty credentials <laughs> to, to be a police officer. And so many of us really believe that 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 this Post Board, who's, who's been the core of this racism, you know, they, they've been operating in a shroud of secrecy and, and without any blacks for, for, for the most part. So recently they're, they're including some black officials as an afterthought. I think we need to uh, get back to a lot of the core of what we want from policing. And, and also in terms of the slogans, I mean, they're right. We need to hear them. We need to listen to them. But then we need to figure out how to implement them, how to operationalize them. Well, one thing I, I think about that has inspired me uh, from your journey is the work that you did with so many young men in in Totem Town 
And I'm curious to know what were some of your strategies and techniques to help young men who had made a, a wrong choice at some point? How did you help them course correct? What were some of the strategies you used uh, for prevention? Well, you know, there's prevention, there's intervention. Uh, a lot of times I, I just got called by the mothers quite often. Sometimes mother would bring them to my house to be arrested. Sometimes I would be called to, mothers would call me to their homes because they know that their their, their son had to be arrested and they, they would rather me do it. Yeah, you know, because I, I, I can figure out ways not to hurt folks, you know. Figure out a lot of ways not to shoot folks is, is what, I'm saying, what I'm saying. By being there when, I, when, when they needed me, by being there, because they don't want in trouble. So, you know, when, when, when a youth commits a crime you know, and is caught and, and being detained, you know, he, he knows he's in a, in a situation and they know who's there for them. And they can tell who's really there for them and who's there to bury them, you know. One of the things I would do, I would take kids up in the woods and make them read. I'd take them out of the Underground Railroad and had some big ahas, you know. Much of what we would do would help them deal with whatever the issues were at the time. We had a we had to save our son's academy at that time, and we we took them canoeing. We took them we took them to uh, and save save our sons is the name of the organization. Yeah. Save our sons, yeah. and and, and we kind of meet the young fellas where they're at and want them to know that son, you know, this gangster stuff is not your heritage. It's not your culture. You know, you come from descendants of kings and queens and and architects and mathematicians and doctors. You know, and 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 greatness, you know, kingdoms, you know. And once once I think uh, a young person knows that, hey, I'm 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 more than just this assignment, you know, because because America gives African American males an assignment. You know, you you are contained in this capacity and behave less than who you are. And we help them to know that you are more than just this number that they give you when you're incarcerated. You know, and and sometimes I accuse them, you're you're too good to be here. Yeah, your mama dad, your mama didn't carry you in no nine months, but you'd be in captivity, you know. And I am a survivor of Sergeant Carter's brow beatings growing up myself. <laughs> and one of the things that I noticed here, and I think it gets to your point that you had spoken to earlier, Miss Georgia, around who how we are being we gotta call ourselves out. We gotta hold ourselves accountable in terms of our internal community space. Um, I experienced homelessness. Um, not that there weren't folks around to take, but I fell off of folks radar enough to be on the street. And, and I remember, I will never forget my, my dad and I had this place and then, and then the landlord was trying to put us out. I was, the doors were locked basically. And Sergeant Carter was dropping me off after, I don't even remember what, what event or what thing it was that I had been dragged to. And I'm going to use that word specifically dragged to, uh, cause I didn't necessarily want to go there, but I knew they had food and I was hungry. And so then um, I went to go go up to the, my house and we had to go up these back steps. It was over in the North End area. You know, I'm waving all, all the way along and he's not leaving. He's not moving. And I'm trying to wave him off so that he doesn't see that I'm going to go up to the door and then turn around and go someplace else because I had to figure out where I was going to be that night. And I watched him watch me. And it was from that point on when uh, the whole community, all of a sudden, I came back on my radar. They got in touch with my family. Uh, Dr. Dolores Henderson, who's a well-known educator, all of a sudden started talking to me and connecting me up. All of a sudden, I started getting pulled, my ear pulled into different programs, and 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 the radar was there. And I think that's an essential piece of what um, I've seen happening as a Save Our Sons, you know, uh, survivor, survivor <laughs> benefitor, um, is is that noticing, and it gets back to this this notion of of saying who did it in our community. Like we have to be watching, we have to 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 be willing. 
to step up and say, I'm going to face directly what ain't right and, and, and say something about it. Otherwise, folks will fall through the cracks. This is what I would see when I would get pulled into to go along with, with Sergeant Carter to to Red Wing, to to Totem Town, and and Duluth, now Duluth, Duluth. <laughs> and and it wasn't just that it wasn't just enough to get snatched up. I had to turn around and I had to turn around and say, "All right, now you're going to run programming. Now you're going to do these things." All the way to the canoe trips, <laughs> shaking the boat and trying to uh, race down down the canoes, and and I'm I'm sure we owe some kind of money for ditting up them canoes at some yeah. point. Um, but it's that kind of watch watching in in that I think is. Is essential, and it's what's being asked of us now in terms of these recent um, uh, shootings that have left some of our young people hurt. But also, I want to say that because I was able to have a big difference in a lot of the lives of young men, I called together a lot of men together, and 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 we tried to do it collectively, wholesome. And we we had we did a pretty good job. We had some adventures and some misadventures. We had some laughs, and we've 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 had some great success. You know. A lot of our young men are doing good. They're not in jail. They're they're, they're paying taxes. They're they're paying child support, and they're good dads, and they're taking care of the responsibilities. You know, like Michael Lewis used to will tell me now, and he said, "Mr. Carter, you don't know what it meant to me in those days. You know, you have no idea. Yes, I did. I really did. That's why I did seeing men, and, and you know, and Anthony, I could see Anthony watching me. Whatever this is, this is a, a critical moment in time because this young man is eyes on me." And um, I could see him analyzing whatever, I, whatever this thing was at the time, hoping that I had passed the test, whatever it was. I had some selfish involvement. So I'd come home, there'd be a bunch of kids in my house, I'd be, and I'd come home with some pizzas, you know, and it'd be a blizzard outside. <laughs> and I'm going to hear you kids. I'm going to bed, tear these up. Anthony couldn't eat nothing because he was lactose intolerant. I thought, well, that's his fault. You know, I ain't, and, 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 and my wife would say. You can eat the crust. <laughs> yeah, but, but my wife would say, honey, honey, you know. You know. And the next thing you know, I'm out there going to get uh, a hamburger or something. I got a good blessing, a son-in-law out there deal. I saw him coming. I saw, he was on my radar. I mean, I was allowing for the possibility that this may someday be the father of my grandchildren. So I was so it was selfish of me to invest in him. I invested in him with great selfishness. We one of the things that we do, um, and thank you so much for your stories. Thank you for for connecting that. And I think um, when I think about the word comeuppance, you know, we often use that in a, in a negative sense, like somebody's going to get their just desserts. But it also means that you're going to reap what you sow. So that's both the bad, but also the good, um, and the investment that we put in. One of the things that we do, um, you know, is is in, and hopefully. Um, our comeuppance, right, um, is something that looks akin to justice after all of the work that we're putting in. And so um, thank you so much for your stories and helping to connect those dots, particularly from Rondo to now <laughs> um, and all of the work and the folks who have been left changed because you and the groups of elders in our community who you connect with, I, I've been connected to elders as a response to that. So, you know, when we end our show, we always end our show with asking, how are you being you in this moment? And I know we've got, we all usually let our guests go first, but I need to say that one of the ways I'm being me right now is honoring all of the elders and community that I have connection to because of your involvement in my life. And so that is one way that I'm being me right now is just honoring and owning that and, and all the aunties and uncles that I have because somebody paid attention to community and held accountable um, our community for what needed to happen. So let me extend that question to you. How are you being you right now in this moment? Well, in, in the scheme of eternity, I, 
I always enjoy every single breath. And I think about uh, uh, all the people that cannot breathe and just how powerful we are just because we can inhale, savor, and, and, and bring breath into our bodies and get some circulation going and, and exhale and be the best self we can be and, and, and savor the moment for who we are and, and the people that we're around and, and love people and love the life I live and live the life I love. All right, I hear that. Miss Georgia, how are you being you in this moment? I would say in this moment, you know, taking some time to put the camera down, being intentional about carving out time in my schedule to just be, be a friend, be a mother, be a wife, and really enjoying those moments. Um, I have reconnected with a, a few friends who really, really prioritize health and wellness. And so continuing to learn more about, you know, the power of herbal medicine, the power of just going to connect with the earth, going outside and taking your shoes off and feeling the grass between your toes and, and how centering it can be and uh, how uh, revitalizing it can be to just feel the sun on your face after so many months of winter and, and being cooped in the house through this pandemic. So uh, being me by, you know, continuing to tell stories, but also finding those moments where I can connect with those who I love. That is beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Miss Georgia, for that insight. Thank you so much for coming and blessing us, um, Sergeant Carter, for um, with all the work that you've done over the years, but also reflecting on this moment to help capture it as we do um, as we do the work of reckoning um, here at the epicenter of, of a lot of the racial reckoning that's happening in the country. Well, there are many projects that are that are happening under the racial reckoning project, but one that we want to call out very specifically is a documentary uh, produced by uh, Miss Georgia. That's right. One of the pieces that we're working on is called George Floyd a year later. And as we look at the one year anniversary of his passing, we want to reflect back on how we got to this moment, what has changed and what hasn't? And so this uh, audio documentary uh, I worked on in partnership with Marianne Combs and the entire Racial Reckoning Project team, it, it really dives deep into what happened before George Floyd that led to this historic moment. Um, if you want to hear more about that and learn more about, about that powerful documentary and all the work that's happening, go to racialreckoningmn.org and you can get access not only to the documentary, but also to all of the reporting by this wonderful team of, of talented journalists. And let me, let me say and call out very specifically this powerful group of women who are, are providing this insight um, go to racialreckoningmn.org to find out more. Um, we always end our show, thanks to Miss Georgia, um, by uh, with a powerful quote from one of our favorite healers in the community. So to end our show, I'll go ahead and kick it back to Miss Georgia. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This has been Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>